Well, I bet everyone's wondering today, is Eric going to talk about Thanksgiving, the history of Thanksgiving, where it comes from, and why we should be thankful? Actually, no, I'm not going to talk about that. So we can get that out of the way right away. Howard spoke a, uh, two weeks ago on Daniel chapter 10, and he talked about how uh, he talked about this battle that rages on in our culture, the spiritual battle, and how Yeshua, of course, has won the battle when he died and rose from the dead. He put a dent into uh, the work of the adversary in our world, but of course, the battle still rages on, you know, all around us. There's a spiritual battle that goes on all across the world, and he was speaking about this after the Paris attacks. Of course, that was a context, and we just, he was, just did a great job of talking about this battle that rages on, and so I kind of want to build on that today a little bit, because really today, what we see is that uh, there's a battle that rages on for uh, who Yeshua is. Uh, you know, Yeshua, of course, is the most controversial person probably in the history of the world. Uh, you probably know that there's been uh, more written about Yeshua than anybody else, more controversy, more debates, uh, more magazine covers about Yeshua. We, we've got all kinds of pictures of him trying to make him into a certain image. As you know, none of these really hold up as I have on the screen. They're all kind of funny. Um, my mom used to hand these to me whenever, she always got Time Magazine, my, my mom and dad growing up, they'd always hand me to, these to me to read when I became a believer in Yeshua, and I'm like, oh great, another Time Magazine article, or Newsweek. So, you know, a lot of these are out there, and they've been around, and they keep going around, and, you know, the battle really rages on for really who Yeshua is. And, you know, really uh, what we need to realize is that it's really quite frankly, a spiritual battle that goes on in our culture for the hearts and minds of people about uh, the identity of who Yeshua is. And it's sad because uh, with the age of the internet, there's even more misinformation out there, of course, about Yeshua. And I'm sure that for many of us, if you've done any kind of, uh, you know, outreach or talked to anybody about Yeshua, maybe you've heard some very, very confusing and conflicting messages about who Yeshua is. And it can be just downright depressing at times. So uh, what I'm going to do is go over a, uh, some of these views of Yeshua, and we're going to go deeper after that, but um, I just want to reflect a little bit on some of these battles that go on in the hearts and minds of people and about who Yeshua is, and it's, it's certainly not getting any better out there. But uh, we do know, as Howard said a couple weeks ago, about this battle that goes on like from, uh, in the hearts and minds of people that really Yeshua is the answer, right? He is the only one that can change the human heart. He's the only one that can get rid of racial conflict and anti-Semitism and hatred and division, all those things. He's the only, he's really the answer for humanity. And so if we're not able to get Yeshua right, uh, obviously that's going to lead to a lot of problems. And so I just want to talk about some of these uh, conflicting views of Yeshua, and then we'll talk about what we can do as a Messianic congregation, of course, individually and corporately. So, of course, today we have uh, a view of Yeshua that is dominating the world, uh, and that, of course, is the uh, Muslim Yeshua. And, of course, uh, Islam. Uh, with Islam, you have a, uh, a man named Muhammad who uh, was meditating in a cave seeking Allah, and he had this supposed revelation from an angel Gabriel who uh, gave him this revelation of God, 
And of course, this went on to become the Quran. And this was about six to 650 years after the life of Yeshua. And of course, we know that uh, this is a very uh, popular view of Yeshua in the Muslim world because uh, Islam is a, a very large religion, as, as we know, over a billion adherents. And with Islam, uh, we do have a few commonalities with them. Of course, they believe Yeshua was a prophet, a great prophet. Uh, they believe Yeshua was virgin-born. They believe Yeshua did miracles. But we certainly part ways uh, with their view of Yeshua's death and resurrection because actually in the Muslim view, Yeshua never died. Uh, Allah delivered him up uh, before he died. It was someone else that died in his place. And of course, Yeshua never rose from the dead. And that, of course, is uh, problematic, uh, but this is certainly uh, the common view in Islam, that Yeshua has great uh, relevance, but he's definitely not the Son of God, not the one who died and rose from the dead. And in Islam, Yeshua is coming back. Uh, he's going to, unfortunately, be bad news for the Jewish people and the Christians. Uh, he's going to uh, get rid of them and all the enemies of Allah and uh, be here for a long time. So... Unfortunately, you know, when it comes to the Muslim view of Yeshua, we don't uh, agree with them about his death and resurrection otherwise. Now, in Columbus, actually, uh, I don't know if you've seen this sign. It's, uh, I saw it over here one day. It's, it's, it's actually all around everywhere. I've talked to these people. And the newest view is Yeshua is a Muslim. Um, I know you guys are like, what? What are you talking about? But uh, actually, it's uh, quite prevalent now. That's their new message, their new marketing. So that's something we have to deal with with them as well. So they uh, actually are going around saying that Yeshua is Muslim. So that's quite interesting. Um, and actually, they arrived to this conclusion basically because uh, in Islam, uh, Islam means submission, one who submits to Allah. So they believe Yeshua is submitted to Allah, therefore Yeshua is a Muslim. So unfortunately, I know you guys are like, ugh, but anyway, it's uh, unfortunate. So that's one view of Yeshua that's very uh, common today. We have another uh, view of Yeshua, the Mormon Yeshua. Well, uh, if you've ever talked to Mormons, they are quite uh, evangelistic. I see them at a high estate all the time, walking around. Actually, I have to say they are the most aggressive bunch I've ever seen. They're, they're, they're pretty much everywhere. But uh, they believe, of course, that Joseph Smith was seeking the things of God in the 1800s. He prayed for wisdom for God. He was confused about all the different denominations and beliefs, and he asked God, what's the truth? And he had, another, he had a revelation as well. He had a revelation of a couple angels. Uh, sometimes they think it's the Father and the Son together there, who uh, told Joseph Smith uh, this information, went on to become the Golden Plates, and uh, became the Book of Mormon. And then, of course, Mormons believe that Yeshua came to America, right? He had to reach the people in America, so Yeshua made it on over here and revealed himself to people in America. So... They are uh, quite evangelistic out everywhere, spreading their message, and uh, they probably will come around to your doors. Maybe they already have, and uh, they've come to my door as well. But uh, very nice people, but uh, fortunately not the same view of Yeshua as we have. So that's another view of Yeshua that's out there, uh, very common. Uh, then we have, uh, I don't need pictures for this one, because this is called the moralistic Yeshua, and I bet you're saying, what in God's name is that? Well, the moralistic Yeshua is really a very, very prevalent view among young people today. Uh, there is a sociologist named Christian Smith, and what he did is he interviewed 3,000 teens across the United States about what they believe about Yeshua. And what he discovered was that they said four, about four main things. 
They said that God exists, but uh, God really is not involved in the world today. Uh, God created the world, but he kind of is just hands-off now, kind of a deistic view of God. And Yeshua is really just a moral teacher. He's like Gandhi or anybody else, and he gives us morals to live by. He helps us live a moral life, be nice, be tolerant. And there's no really supernatural message of Yeshua. You know, Yeshua is not engaged in our lives on a daily basis. He's just a, a good moral teacher, and he just helps us to be moral and kind. And so uh, that's what a lot of teens believe that the faith is about, and uh, that's unfortunate. Uh, that's why we're trying to, of course, teach our own teens. That is not the Yeshua of the Bible, but that's a very, very common view today. Uh, one person down, I remember years ago when I was... Uh, talking about Yeshua, somebody, somebody said, well, who cares if he's the Messiah rose from the dead? All that matters is he's got some good ethics for us. Uh, so that's unfortunate that that's how Yeshua gets, uh, gets kind of boiled down to just a moralistic Yeshua. Another view of Yeshua is, of course, the American Yeshua, right? And uh, we have the uh, books written today trying to fit Yeshua in American life. We've got Yeshua CEO, using ancient wisdom for visionary leadership. We've got Yeshua can be a life coach to you. Life coaching is very big today. And look, you can even find out what Yeshua ate. You have your own Yeshua cookbook. Anyway, for all you cooks out here today, you can find out what Yeshua ate. I have no idea what he ate because, I mean, the Gospels don't talk much about that. So I'm not sure how they arrived at that conclusion. But Yeshua is really being fit into American culture. Now, of course, the biggest, uh, one of the, uh, the real challenging ways or the way that Yeshua is really fit into American culture is uh, the political scene, right? Because uh, Yeshua certainly gets fit into one or the other political party, and then, of course, Yeshua is on your side or that side, and uh, we have a case of political idolatry, which is about to hit us right again. It's right around the corner. It's coming right now. So Yeshua, of course, is about uh, that one side or the other, and Yeshua is really Americanized in many ways today. And that's too bad, because uh, that, uh, unfortunately, is trying to uh, uh, fit Yeshua into a... Uh, it's really taking him out of his own culture and really trying too hard to put him into our own culture, okay? Then, of course, we have the Yeshua of the skeptics. Well, I don't have any pictures for this one. I couldn't really think of one. But uh, the Yeshua of the skeptics, of course, is uh, really not any Yeshua because skeptical people doubt the existence of Yeshua. They don't believe he certainly died and rose from the dead. They're highly critical of the New Testament writings, things like that. And they certainly uh, write all their books and try to tell people Yeshua, we can't know much about Yeshua at all. Well, very small part of the, uh, the culture, but they're out there, and uh, they certainly have their influence in some ways on the internet. Um, have to watch out for them as well. Then we have the traditional view of Yeshua. Well, what I mean by the traditional Jewish view of Yeshua is the Jewish community's view of Yeshua today. Uh, most uh, Jewish people today, you either run into uh, different, uh, different views of Yeshua. You run into the ones that haven't really thought about Yeshua. He's just not relevant to them at all. You have the view of Yeshua that he was just another messianic uh, figure in the first century who was crucified, martyred, another led a Jewish revolt of some kind or Jewish uprising, and he got killed, a Jewish revolutionary. Or else Yeshua is just like a false prophet. He's another prophet that came along and led Israel astray 
and he's really not for the Jewish people. But one way or the other, uh, the majority of the Jewish community, as we know, do not accept Yeshua's Messiahship, and they certainly don't believe he's divine in any way. So what about us? Well, I just want to share something with you. I noticed something very interesting a, a few years back. We had uh, Dr. Brown, Michael Brown, came in. We brought him to Beth Messiah for a couple days. I don't know if anyone was here for that. Some of you were, where he taught. He did a great teaching at Beth Messiah, and then we had him speak at Ohio State. And I decided to do something provocative, because you've got to have a provocative title to get students to come. You know, you can't have something boring. So I decided to title the presentation, Is Jesus or Is Yeshua the Jewish Messiah? Well, that was an eye-opening experience, may I say. <laughs> I, uh, I went out and, uh, you know, of course we promoted the event. Uh, we promoted starting about a month ahead of time, handing out flyers, posters, everything. And what I noticed was really, uh, over the weeks as I was handing these out, is uh, really just a state of confusion that goes on in our culture about Yeshua. Because I had the Christians coming up to me, saying to me, they would walk up to me with the flyer, and they say, wait, what are you saying? Is he the Christian Messiah or the Jewish Messiah? Which one? Then I had the Jewish people coming up and saying, wait, I'm confused. He's not the Jewish Messiah, of course. And then I had everyone else, you know. So what I found, I even had one, by the way, I had one Christian that came up to me. She was walking by, and she looked at me, and she said, she looked at the poster and she said, I'm a Christian and I'm proud of it. And she kept walking that way. So she just walked right by me. So the goal was not to certainly confuse anybody. The goal was to hopefully give Yeshua a Jewish context and talk about his Messiahship. Uh, of course, he has to be the Jewish Messiah. Well, I found out the, uh, through that experience, you know, there's a lot of different, a lot of confusion about Yeshua. And, you know, I have a quote here that really uh, plays in with what uh, this, this title says here about the Jewish Messiah. Look at this quote by uh, this uh, scholar here from Boston College. It says here, If Christians leave the concrete reality of Yeshua's life and of the history of Israel in favor of a mythic, universal, spiritual Yeshua and an otherworldly kingdom of God, they deny their origins in Israel, their history, and the God who has loved and protected Israel and the church. They cease to interpret the actual Yeshua sent by God and remake him into their own image and likeness. The dangers are obvious if Christians violently wrench Yeshua out of his natural, ethnic, and historical place within the people of Israel. They open the way to doing equal violence to Israel, the place and the people of, his, of Yeshua. This is a lesson of history that haunts us at the end of the 20th century. And that's really where we are today. We have a non-Jewish Yeshua out there, and we have no context for Yeshua. And that is why we have all kinds of weird views of Yeshua. Now, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 here. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, as I said, Howard talked about this battle that rages on, this uh, spiritual battle that's still going on in this world, even though Yeshua has won the victory. We have a battle that goes on for the hearts and minds of people, and Paul addresses this. In 2 Corinthians 10, it's very interesting. I thought of this passage as Howard was speaking. But look at verse 1 in chapter 10, uh, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 1. It says here, Now I, Paul, myself urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Messiah, of Yeshua, I, am, I, who, am, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold towards you and absent, 
I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Yeshua, and we are ready to punish all disobedience and every your obedience is complete. You know, Paul talks here really about these false ideologies, these false mindsets that people that happen in people's minds when it comes to uh, who Yeshua is. Now, in verse 4, he uses this metaphor, this uh, warfare metaphor. But in verse 4, you notice how some of your translations will say, uh, instead of fortresses, they'll say strongholds. You know, it says the weapons of our warfare, not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of strongholds. And, you know, strongholds uh, certainly uh, refers to arguments. Uh, sometimes, you know, we talk about... Uh, and then in verse 5, it talks about we're destroying these speculations. Those are uh, these, uh, you know, these uh, mindsets that exist in people's minds, their imaginations. These things, of, these ideas that form in people's minds that prevent them from seeing the light of the gospel, prevent them from having the knowledge of God. And really, it is a spiritual battle, but uh, really what Paul says here certainly is that, uh, you know, these are ideologies that develop in our world, you know, in our culture. And of course, he's dealing with the Corinthians in this context, the things they believe, but an application can be made to today that these mindsets are ingrained in people's hearts and minds of who Yeshua is. Now, it's interesting that Paul, uh, you know, it sounds here like he's saying, uh, you know, these reasonings are, are, are bad, you know, of course, the, uh, the, some of them are false ideologies and false reasoning, but it's interesting, when you look at Paul's ministry in his own day, he actually, uh, you know, the way he dealt with those issues was he went into those areas and he dealt with them head on. Uh, you know, these false mindsets, these false views of Yeshua. For example, uh, in Acts 17, you know, he goes into the synagogue in Thessalonica. It says he explained, gave evidence, proclaimed, persuaded with the philosophers in Acts 17, 18. It says there he dis was disputing with them. In 1 Corinthians 18, 4, he said it was, he was trying to persuade both the Jews and the Greeks there. And then in Ephesus, of course, he was arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. And in Acts 24, 25, he was discussing with Felix the governor, while King Agrippa thought Paul was trying to persuade him to be a follower of Yeshua. And then in Acts 26, of course, Paul was explaining, testifying, trying to convince him about Yeshua. So when we have all these different views of Yeshua in our culture, the first thing to do is not to just pray. Uh, you know, I know prayer is really important. We should be praying. But you notice in 2 Corinthians 10, Paul doesn't say anything there about praying. He actually is talking about we need to take these things head on and deal with them because we have to come uh, at them directly because these are the false mindsets that people have about Yeshua. Now, of course, we pray. We have to pray all the time. Prayer and uh, co confronting these issues go hand in hand with each other. You can't have one without the other. But it's very interesting you know, how Paul approaches this. He definitely uh, does not say anything about prayer in 2 Corinthians 10. 
we have to use, we might say, uh, in the power of the Spirit, good arguments to expose bad arguments, right? Because uh, these false arguments are what preventing people from seeing Yeshua. Now, turn with me to Romans 1, Romans chapter 1. Now, I talked a little bit about how uh, Yeshua certainly, is, there's great confusion about Yeshua, and there's great confusion about uh, the context of Yeshua, and I was talking about how we really don't have a Jewish context for Yeshua, and how that can be very, uh, of course, that can lead to all kinds of problems, and we don't have the right context for uh, Yeshua. Now, Paul is writing to the Romans here, and I want to share here, of course, Paul's gospel, what he talks about who Yeshua is. Now, let's look at verse 1 here. It says here in Romans 1, verse 1, it says, Paul, a bondservant of Messiah Yeshua, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Yeshua, our Messiah, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom are called the called of Yeshua, the Messiah, to whom are also, to whom are beloved to God in Rome, called his saints, grace to you and peace from God the Father, and the Lord Yeshua, the Messiah. Okay, well, if there's anything that we see here, we certainly see a Jewish context to Yeshua, uh, Paul's message about Yeshua. Now, you notice he says here in verse 3, uh, he says here, Yeshua is the son who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh. Uh, keep your finger in Romans 1. And turn with me to Psalm 2. Go into the Psalms and go to Psalm 2, please. And look at a couple Psalms here. Where does Paul get this understanding about Yeshua's uh, being a descendant of David and being the son? Well, we know that Israel, of course, was a son of God. God was a father to them. And we know they were to represent, uh, Israel uh, was supposed to represent God as the ideal uh, people. And, of course, God called out a king. He called out King David to be uh, the ideal king, to be the uh, king of Israel. But we see here in Psalm 2 where it speaks here of a king that will rule over the nations. Look what Psalm 2 says. It says here, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. And he who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in their fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell a decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession." You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the sun. They may not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are you who take refuge in him. This passage speaks, of course, of the Davidic king. Now, 
Most Jewish scholars, if you read their rabbinical commentaries, they think this is about King David. Uh, it's really only about King David. But if you read closely, uh, it talks about this figure, this son, this king, uh, that God will give them, actually, God will give this uh, king uh, the nations. Really, he will have a rulership that extends all over the world. So we might say this does speak of King David, but it also points to a greater David who will come, right? It points to an ultimate Davidic king that will come. And turn to, as we keep that thought in mind from Psalm 2, look at Psalm 89. Go to Psalm 89. Stay in the Psalms. Go to Psalm 89. Another passage about the Davidic king. If you go to Psalm 89 and look at a verse, I can't, I'm not going to read the whole thing, obviously, but let's go to verse uh, 20. It says here in verse 20 in Psalm 89, Psalm 89, verse 20, the psalmist says, I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him, with whom my hand will be established, and my arm will also strengthen him. The enemy will not receive him, nor the son of the wickedness afflict him, but I shall crush him. I will shall crush, his, crush his adversaries before him and strike those who hate him. My faithfulness and my loving kindness will be with him, and my name, and in his name his horn will be exalted. I shall also set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. I shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My loving kindness I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall be confirmed to him. So I will establish his descendants forever and his throne as the days of heaven. So back in Romans 1, if we go back there, we see as Paul speaks of this descendant of David, of course, the Messiah is the descendant of David. He is a greater David. He is the ultimate son of God, not just a son of God. One, of course, who is the ultimate Davidic king. And Paul says in verse 4, he's declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Uh, God, of course, has affirmed Yeshua as the son of God through the resurrection. He has appointed him as the son of God. The resurrection is the validation of by the fact that he is definitely the Davidic king, okay? So that is a very Jewish message. You know, we need to remember that uh, at Beth Messiah, we have the opportunity to actually restore Yeshua in a Jewish context. Now, you may say to yourself, well, I talk to other people about Yeshua, and they say he's Jewish, and yeah, he's Jewish, but we have the Jewish message to take out to take outside of her into the world around us. Of course, the Yeshua is the promised Jewish Messiah, and we can restore him in a Jewish context. Now, if you go down in Romans 1, as Paul goes on here, he then talks about his eagerness to preach the gospel. He says in verse 14 that he's under obligation to both Greeks and to barbarians, to both the wise and the foolish, he says here, he's eager in verse 15, he says, For my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel, the good news, to you also are in Rome. And in verse 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So Paul had a burning desire and an obligation to, of course, preach the good news to both Jew and Greek. 
And he's confident in it. He's not, he doesn't, he's not ashamed of it. He's not disgraced by it. He believes in the power of the message. He's actually absolutely confident in the good news, okay? So, if all this confusion is out there about Yeshua today, and we have so many people that have these different mindsets about Yeshua, we have the Muslim community, we have Mormons, we have the skeptics, we have the own, our own Jewish community that doesn't know about Yeshua, doesn't have the right understanding, they don't really understand who Yeshua is, they have uh, false mindsets that have developed in their thinking over the years through either misinformation, whatever it is. You know, it could be they just were told by somebody else, they read it on the internet, etc., etc. We have to understand the only thing that is going to get these people out of these false understandings of Yeshua is us proclaiming the message, the good news to them. We have to show them, we have to bring it to them. And that is why all congregations, wherever they are, some of them are, in some ways, we send. And uh, some of us, of course, we have a role as a sending congregation. We send people out. We're all called to go out. Uh, some of us are sent to certain areas of the country or world. You know, we know Don's going, planning to go to Israel, and she'll talk about that, I think, next week. Next week. Uh, Don is going to be sent. She's, uh, she's obviously senses the call of God to be sent. Uh, some of us, of course, are uh, sent around here. You know, we have our own areas of outreach and influence, but we're all sent. But the point of the matter is people need to hear it. And, you know, for some of us, perhaps we need to ask, you know, what, uh, what is it today that maybe causes us to shrink or maybe be a little ashamed of the good news? Now, I'm not accusing anybody in here of being ashamed of the good news. I'm not saying that about anybody here. Please hear me. All of us uh, fall into certain areas of our spiritual lives where we just can't get motivated, right? Uh, life hardens us. We have challenges. We have financial challenges, family challenges, job challenges. And just life in general just kind of makes us uh, dull <laughs> or just kind of complacent to the unbelieving world around us. And so we tend to maybe shrink back and be... A uh, little ashamed of the good news. Now, I, I think intellectually we would say, no, I'm, I'm not ashamed of Yeshua, no way. But we may fall into these mindsets sometimes. So why are we ashamed of the good news? Well, I came up with some of these on my own because I've wrestled with these myself. Well, first and foremost, uh, sometimes we're ashamed of the good news because we might offend somebody. Uh, you know, we're worried that we might really upset somebody if we share that message of Yeshua. And there's no doubt we live in a day of political correctness. It's just dominating our culture. We don't want to offend anybody. People are very sensitive, anti, uh, you know, we're about feelings and sensitivity. And, you know, perhaps we need to realize is that the message itself is actually offensive, you know. Uh, the message of a crucified Messiah in the first century that Paul took to Rome uh, would really be offensive. The message of a crucified Messiah to his own countrymen was offensive. Uh, Yeshua was shamed by being on that execution stake, and it was offensive to his own people. So first and foremost, you need to remember the message is offensive. We don't have to be offensive. We could be. We don't try not to be. But we need to remember the message speaks for itself. The power is in the message, not in the messenger, okay? Second thing is that uh, we might be worried 
that we can't answer objections. Perhaps some of us have shared the Messiah with people, and people say to us, well, what about this? What about the reliability of the Bible? What about uh, the truth of the resurrection? How do you know Yeshua rose from the dead? The objections go on and on. And we're worried we just can't answer those, so perhaps we just shrink back and say, oh, forget it. I'm not going to talk about Yeshua with anybody. Well, uh, remember that, as I said the last time, we're never going to be able to answer every single question in our world today. There's just too much information out there. But uh, there are more than enough resources out there for us to get our hands on that we can read and study and build up our knowledge base so that we can answer a lot of these objections and we can be confident in our faith and we don't have to worry or shrink back. And that's why we have that good old word called apologetics. So we have more than enough resources out there we can get our hands on and learn about this. So that shouldn't be an issue at all. Another reason sometimes we're ashamed is that uh, perhaps we're not even sure if the good news really is good news. Maybe we think the good news is bad news. Maybe some of us have received the Messiah into our own lives, but over the years we've had some challenges and we're really questioning the goodness of God. And maybe we're just not really sure if we want to share this message because we're not even sure of it ourselves anymore. Well, that's an issue, as I talked about a little bit the last time, that comes down to an issue of maybe some doubts we have to work through. But uh, perhaps we need to really, uh, you know, ask ourselves if we really believe the message is good news. Or perhaps we're embarrassed by those that have made a mockery of our faith. We're afraid to say anything to anybody because they've embarrassed us as believers. But that's not a good reason not to share the good news, right? Then we have, of course, the issue of we're not even sure what the good news is. <laughs> Believe it or not, many believers today are still arguing about what is the gospel or the good news. Well, let me say in, in Romans 1, I gave you a very Jewish uh, context here. might say Paul's gospel, uh, which I think is a very effective way of sharing it. But when we read throughout the Brikhat Shah, the gospel is presented in so many different contexts and so many different ways that we really can't say it is presented one way. In Yeshua's ministry, of course, he uses Isaiah a lot. He uses the Isaiah gospel, like in Luke 4. Uh, he talks about the reign of God continuously throughout his, his ministry. Then we have the book of Acts. All they talk about is Yeshua's death and resurrection, of course. A lot of emphasis on his atoning death and resurrection. Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, talks about Yeshua's death and resurrection as the good news. And we just have the gospel presented in many different contexts. So it's always good for us to go through the whole Bible, especially the Berkatashah, and study the, the various contexts, the way the gospel is used in the, all those different contexts. So those are some of the reasons perhaps maybe we fall into being uh, ashamed of the good news. Maybe you have your own. Maybe you're thinking here today you've come up with your own, uh, you know, and so, what are some of the possible solutions uh, that come up, we can come up with to get out of being, maybe being ashamed? Now, I've thought about these a lot myself. Uh, first and foremost, uh, we need to remember that the enemy of our soul wants to rob us of our identity in the Lord. Perhaps for many of us, we forget who we are in the Messiah, and that's one of the things that just hammers away at us, and we don't really have the motivation to talk about the Messiah because we don't know who we are in the Messiah. Maybe our identity is in what we have or what we don't have, right? Where you live, where you don't live. Maybe our identity is in your career. Maybe your identity is in your uh, relationship with somebody. Maybe your identity is in what people think of you or they don't think of you or people's affirmation of you or 
uh, you know, it just goes on and on. We are always fighting a spiritual attack on who we are in the Lord. And every day we get up, we have to ask God to remind us of our identity. We have to claim that identity on a daily basis. And we have to be excited about Yeshua and who we are in the Lord, right? Everybody out there is finding their identity in something, you know? They're going to find their identity in something. So we have to show why identity in the Lord matters and is relevant. Another thing is to spend more time in praise and thanksgiving. Praise and thanksgiving has a very powerful impact on our lives. It takes the focus off ourselves. It puts it on the Lord. It revives us. It keeps us close to God. Uh, it makes the presence of God more apparent in our lives. So there is something very, very powerful, and may I say therapeutic, <laughs> about praising the Lord and certainly giving more thanks to God. So I, the Bible commands us so much to give thanks to God continuously. That'll certainly keep our eyes focused on the Lord when we do that. Another thing we can do is pray to God. Uh, ask God for a burden for people. Well, as I talked about how we get a little hardened in life and we get a little complacent, we can always pray to God to ask him to revive us, to give us a brokenness towards the world around us. That's something I have to do uh, because sometimes we don't see people through God's eyes, you know, and we need to certainly be praying regularly that God would break us and give us that brokenness towards the people he has around us on a regular basis. That will certainly help us when you feel the Spirit of God, really how he feels about those around us, because that's what he can do. He can give you a burden for people. So we can ask God for a burden on a regular basis. And of course, the uh, other thing to remember, as Paul talked about in Romans 1 here, is Yeshua as the Lord, is we need to remember to make, to that Yeshua is the Lord and wants to be the Lord through us. Now, I'm sure many of us have heard over the years that we have to make Yeshua the Lord of our lives and we have to exert his lordship over us or surrender this area or make him the Lord. Well, let me suggest, sound like Howard there, uh, may, I, uh, may I suggest, there I sound like Howard again, uh, we need to remember that Yeshua is the Lord, okay? Uh, he's already the Lord, right? He's already been the Lord. And what he wants to do is to be the Lord through us and express his life through us. All we need to do to make him the Lord is yield ourselves over to him. We don't necessarily have to go through a checklist of how he can become the Lord because there already is the Lord, okay? We make him the Lord, we will certainly take uh, sharing the, our faith uh, on, a, on a regular basis seriously. And then we need to remember that the Spirit of God is constantly at work in our lives. Every day we get up, no matter how we feel, no matter what's going on in our lives, no matter what circumstances we are in, we need to remember that the rock is always working in our lives. And his goal is to always draw attention to Yeshua in us, proclaim Yeshua through us. He's wanting to bear the fruit of the Spirit through us. He's trying to stir us, motivate us, revive us. There's no one uh, revival meeting that goes on. Revival is a regular, ongoing thing. Renewal is a daily thing. And he is always there working in our lives on a daily basis. Perhaps we need to cooperate with him, but he is there, never, ever leaving us alone. And that is why we should be grateful for God for never leaving us alone. So when it comes to Yeshua today, you know, we need to remember that as the days go by, you know, the battle is going to rage on 
around us every day for who Yeshua is, you know, and these false understandings of Yeshua are not going away. They're only going to get worse, and we need to take those things head on. We need to not withdraw from the culture, of course. I hope we're not doing that, but actually engage, and remember the Spirit of God is there to help us do that, right? And we need to remember this is a Jewish message. It needs to go out into the whole world. It's for Israel and the nations, We need to remember Yeshua, of course, is the Davidic king. He's reigning right now, but he reigns through us on a daily basis. And we have a tremendous responsibility. We have a tremendous opportunity. But uh, we live in dark days, but we remember that we have the message of light, which is in Yeshua, our Lord, our Messiah. So having said that, why don't we reflect on what we've heard and ask God to speak to our hearts. Lord, we just thank you so much for today. We thank you so much, Lord God, for the message of the good news. We thank you, Lord God, that we have come to know the Messiah. I pray, Lord God, for anyone that's here today that does not know the Messiah, that they would ask you about who he is, that they would make a decision to make him the Lord of their lives. I pray, God, if you're speaking to that person today, that they would enter that relationship with you. And we pray, God, of course, for so many people out there that don't know the good news, that we would be the agent, the agent that would take the message of Yeshua to them, that we would understand that we have the message. I pray, God, that we wouldn't be ashamed of it, that we would experience your Holy Spirit giving us the boldness and the opportunity, and that we would obey him as we go out into a dark and needy world. We pray for people to be set free from these false mindsets about who Yeshua is. May they realize he is the Davidic king, the Jewish Messiah, of the King of Israel and the whole world. In Yeshua's name, amen.